Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our Lenten sermon series, Easter in the First Person. How did the events of Holy Week and Easter look to those who were there? Today we hear the story of Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. Join us now for the message, Money Can't Buy Happiness. Good morning and welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church here in Duncanville, Texas. I am obviously not Jane Grainer. Jane has been uh, in California this week. As a matter of fact, as we speak, she's on a plane back to Texas right now. So she she left me in charge. I'm so sorry. I apologize in advance. (laughs) Uh, I would like to invite you to give an offering to our ministry. You can do that through our website, which is tumcd.org. You can do that on the Church Center app, or you can also do it here in person. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 26, starting in the 14th verse. We'll be bouncing around just a little bit. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him after one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him. At once he came up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you were here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. This is the word of God for the people of God. I had friends, I really did. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the others, they once considered me their friend. Mary Magdalene and the other women, they looked to me as a friend. And then there was Jesus. He called me to ministry, plucked me from my former life, and trusted me to spread the gospel in his name. I was powerful, was influential. I meant something. And I had friends. I made a difference and I mattered. But all of that, everything I just said to you, it rings hollow with the sting of what was rather than what is. 
One thing is absolutely true. I did believe that Jesus was the most remarkable man I have ever known. Those words, even those words, seemed to fall woefully short. I watched him calm the waters of an angry sea with only his words and his hand. I witnessed his miracles as he healed the lame and gave sight to the blind. I saw him cast out demons from persons who had been possessed. I was there when Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. I stood in awe as he granted eternal life to the Samaritan woman at the well. I was left speechless when Jesus preached what folks are calling his Sermon on the Mount. We were all amazed by the things Jesus could do. The other disciples and I talked about Jesus' incredible feats amongst ourselves when he was not around. At times, some of the other disciples shared my skepticism. Thomas sure did. At other times, the other disciples seemed to have this blind devotion to Jesus, and I confess that that made me feel very uncomfortable. You see, I suspect Jesus knew when we were talking about him. He just had this steely gaze, and you would feel it when he cast his gaze upon you. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. An introduction is in order. My name is Judas. Some people call me Judas Iscariot, but Iscariot is not actually my last name. It refers to the village from which I hail, the village of Kerioth, which is in southern Judea. Maybe this is one of the things that sets me apart from the other disciples. You see, all the others came from the area in and around Galilee, which is in the north. But down south, the political winds blow differently where I come from. I grew up far less trusting of the Roman authorities than many of my counterparts did. I remain less trusting, even as an adult. That said, my views on Rome certainly are not as extreme as someone like Simon, for example. He's considered a zealot, and it really did take me a while to get used to him. Still, I did wonder if Jesus was going to prove to be the Messiah who might finally be the leader of the resistance against the Roman authorities. Maybe Jesus would ultimately rid us of their oppression for good. In reflecting on my evangelism, I think perhaps I chose to preach the kingdom of God because I hoped it would be a catalyst for some sort of relief from the unjust occupation of the Romans. And I know I was not the only disciple who felt this way. In fact, I would say that deep down, most of us hoped that even as we did good work in Jesus' name, there would be other benefits. We might be rewarded with freedom. But you can see how this turned out and what a real mess we're in now. I guess what really got to me, what really enraged me, is how our movement was mishandling the money. Take the perfume incident, you know, the one that everyone was talking about in Bethany a few weeks ago. The perfume Mary used to anoint Jesus' feet cost the equivalent of an annual salary. When I expressed my outrage at this waste of resources, how we could have used this money to, to help the poor in some way, I was swiftly rebuked. I was rebuked by Jesus. I was rebuked by the other disciples for daring to have an opinion. Truth be told, though, in private, the others agreed with my perspective because we all know and we all understand that money is a precious commodity. I felt that their reaction to my opinion was nothing short of cowardice. I've been accused of being motivated by money. Now, don't get me wrong, I like money, but who doesn't? 
Everyone knows that money management is a strength of mine. I was tasked with keeping the books for our group. Why ask me to do that if I could not be trusted? So for anyone to say that money is what drives me, I find that offensive and insulting. Think about everything I gave up to follow Jesus. I gambled my future on the notion that this Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah we all hoped he would be. I gave up my career. I left my former life behind. I selflessly devoted my life to Jesus' cause because he called me to do so. I took on these responsibilities at the cost of everything else I considered important in my life, and look what I have to show for it. Am I bitter? You bet I am. I don't try to hide my frustration. I don't attempt to conceal my true feelings, unlike some of my counterparts. You see, I believe in the strength and the worth of the nation in which I was raised. The Roman occupation is wrong, and the others know it too. So why shouldn't we take advantage of the opportunity we've been given to bring about some sort of meaningful change? If Jesus' message is the vessel for things to be different, so be it. For too long, we've lived beneath leaders who only deign to look down their noses at us. If people are willing to follow our lead, we should lead them. They offer us their money, and for what? At every turn, Jesus has lightened the coffers, not filled them. A revolution must be financed. And let me tell you, we were so close. Just a few weeks ago, Jesus used his powers down by the shore of the Sea of Galilee to feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. So many people were there to witness this, to experience this. We quite literally had the masses eating out of our hands. We could have turned the tide of our movement in that moment. They saw it. They believed. They knew here is the Messiah we've been waiting for, and we could have seized that moment and followed Jesus into battle. But what did Jesus do instead? Just at the moment, the crowds were going to anoint him king as they were demanding to take him and put him on the throne. He went into hiding. He retreated into the mountains alone and left us, left me behind. I have never been more disappointed in my life and so confused. These people were ready to walk through fire for Jesus. We had everything in front of us and there was nothing the Romans could have done to stop it. Three years ago, when I joined Jesus' cause, I could not have anticipated the amount of blood and sweat and tears I have poured into what I thought he was trying to do. And here Jesus is throwing all of that away. Remember when I mentioned he calmed the seas? Last week, we were out on a boat. A storm rolled in and began tossing us around, and we were afraid. Jesus walked onto the water. He walked on water told Peter to join him. Peter walked on the water, was afraid. Jesus saved Peter from drowning. I thought in that moment, okay, maybe Jesus could be redeemed here because folks saw what he did and they wanted to see more. Who wouldn't want to see more? But Jesus refused and the people left. I thought about leaving right then and there. Jesus even asked the disciples if we would leave. Peter spoke up. I stayed silent. I think it was in that moment that Jesus knew that my heart had turned. One of you, he said, is a devil. Don't get me wrong, I did feel guilt. But I know that I was right. Jesus was refusing to take the throne of the kingdom 
we had all worked so hard to build for him. Something had to be done. None of the others had the courage or the forethought to recognize what was happening here. Along the way, through our work, we had made both positive connections and some enemies, too. Among the detractors of our movement were the Pharisees, particularly the ones in the faction of the high priest Caiaphas. I had already watched our group squander our precious resources for what I was now convinced was a lost cause. Caiaphas offered me some restitution for my troubles. Truth be told, 30 pieces of silver is something of an insult for the prize I offered in return. You see, 30 pieces would be decent wages for a month of work for a day laborer, but I was in no position to bargain. Having given up years of salary for myself, I was in no position to protest either. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't much care for Caiaphas. He is a stern, cold man with little regard for anything but the law. He holds such strong views that anyone who dares oppose him could find themselves and have found themselves in trouble with the Romans. Jesus and his followers, myself included, were already in trouble with the authorities. I was content to look after myself and become invisible. The world is not as gray as people might like for you to believe. This world is black and white. Do you know how to play the game or don't you? Can you think three moves ahead or can't you? Can you see the writing on the wall before it is written or does it need to be emblazoned across your forehead for you to finally get the message? I no longer saw any value in running this foolhardy rat race. If Jesus was going to refuse what was rightfully his, what we had created for him, I was out, was done. We weren't in it to win it. And Jesus even said that the first would be the last. Those with the most would receive the least. I didn't sign up for that. When I sold Jesus out, I knew he was a liability. As I said, I did feel guilt. I was not against Jesus. I was desperately wanting desperately to be for Jesus, but Jesus did not want what I wanted. One thought that did occur to me throughout all of this, I would call Jesus teacher or rabbi. I even called him rabbi in the Garden of Gethsemane Thursday night, right before I kissed him. But the others, they call him Lord and God. Remember that blind devotion I mentioned? Moments like those made me uncomfortable. So say what you want. But Jesus, for me, turned out to be nothing more than a disappointing teacher. And those words taste bitter on my tongue. Admit it. You would have considered jumping at the same opportunity as I did. You're more like me than you realize. You think you're above betrayal? You think you're above deception? I scoff at that implication. You're no better than me. And I'm not beneath your contempt. You have all used Jesus in the same way I do. You all cast your fears and your doubts on him. You all speak about him in private, not always in the nicest terms. You question whether his words, his teachings, his miracles, are they real? Did I really see that? You have made Jesus a vessel for all your hopes and dreams, just like I did. But what do you have to show for it? 
I was mostly at peace by the time I made the decision to sell him out. But what I was utterly unprepared for was how gruesome his fate would prove to be. I disappeared on Thursday evening after Jesus was arrested in the garden. I knew I could not be in the presence of the other disciples. They were enraged. Peter even drew a weapon and cut the ear off of one of the slaves who accompanied the arresting soldiers. The soldiers bound Jesus and took him before the Sanhedrin, which is the high council of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Yesterday morning, Jesus ended up before Pontius Pilate, our Roman governor. Pilate really had no skin in this game, or at least that's how I perceived it. I stood in the shadows and I watched the entire proceeding. As is customary, the crowds before Pilate were given a choice as to which of the criminals the court should set free. I was sure it would be Jesus. He had not broken the law. But then the Pharisees roiled the crowd and set them into a frenzy, claiming that Jesus was a heretic. He deserved to die, they said, because he claimed to be the Son of God. The un unrest in Jerusalem was Jesus' fault, they said, and the crowd demanded the release of Barabbas, a convicted robber. I suddenly felt completely helpless. Everything that was to occur from this point forward was out of my hands. I swear to you, I did not desire this fate for Jesus. I will never be able to wipe the senses of yesterday's events clean from my mind. The sounds, the sights, the smells, the feelings. Strips of flesh being rent from Jesus' bare body as he was mercilessly flogged. Jesus carrying the cross on his back up to Golgotha. Seven-inch spikes being driven through his hands and feet. Blood pouring from gaping wounds. The screams and wailings of the women. Jesus' pleas to God. The smell, oh God, the smell is unbearable. I did not ask for this. I sold Jesus to the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver to reclaim some shred of my worth and dignity, but this money did not buy me happiness. This money bought for me a soul tortured with grief and remorse. You see, I tried to do the right thing. I tried to return the money. I tried to call it all off, but it was refused. It was blood money, I was told. So I threw it on the ground, and I came here. The world is dark and sad on this Saturday morning, and I see no way forward. I fear that Jesus will rise from the dead and pursue me. I will be punished for what I have done. The only way out is up this tree. I'm going to end my life today. I hope that something, anything of worth comes out of what has transpired. Please, God, don't let these events mean nothing. And please, God, have mercy on my soul. Amen. And now let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
I want to remind you that recordings of our service can be found both on Facebook and on our website, tumcd.org, as well as on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Action items for this week. Continue to pray for Trinity. We're going to keep asking for that. (laughs) I also encourage you to learn from the lessons of Judas and let not greed or power corrupt you or your relationships with anyone in your life. Now, please receive this benediction. None of us is innocent of betrayal and failure, but all of us can lean on the Lord. Stand up for companions. Deal with them honestly. And as we walk through the garden with Jesus, we know we have a friend. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we continue our sermon series, Easter in the First Person. How did the events of Holy Week and Easter look to those who were there? Come hear the whole story. You will find recordings of all of our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we are now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.